Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Good morning all. Well, we continue this morning our series looking at some of the New Testament churches and what we can learn from them. And we come today to Athens in Acts 17. Now, this is different from all the others we've looked at in two important ways. Firstly, you probably don't need a map to find Athens, although I will give you one anyway in just a minute. But secondly, there wasn't actually a church at all at Athens before Paul arrived. And we hear no more about it in scripture after he left. So when we consider the title here, which is Athens, an engaged church, we're the engaged church. We're looking at how Paul himself engaged with the people he met in Athens and what we can learn as we engage with those we meet in our culture today. Even though Southeast England today is very different from Athens in Paul's day. But we're the engaged church. So show me a hand first of all if you've been to Athens. Who's been to Athens? Quite a few. Well, if you've been to Athens, one thing you will for sure have seen is this. The Parthenon, built around 450 BC. It's actually a temple to the goddess Athene, who gave her name to the city Athens. Now, I studied Greek history at university, and my mum could never understand why I didn't have a, a passionate desire to go to Athens and see the Parthenon for myself. Well, one day maybe, but Paul did get there. And without any doubt, he would have gazed out on this same building, which even then was 500 years old. This same building so many go to see today. But Paul, he got there pretty much by accident. He's on his second missionary journey. This is about AD 49 or 50. It's only 17 years since Jesus' death and resurrection and Paul's own conversion. Now you think back 17 years. That's the time scale. You know, these are, these are recent events. I have been in Amersham 35 years. I've been a Christian 40 years. So I'm at least twice as mature a Christian as Paul was. (laughs) So there's the map. You see up the top, at the top of Greece there, you've got Thessalonica. That's where Paul was with Silas and Timothy. And he went to the synagogue there as usual, it says. And he reasoned with them about Jesus and the resurrection. And the Jews formed a mob to oppose him. And he left overnight in a hurry. And the brothers there brought him down, slightly further down south, to Berea. And there he had a great time in the synagogue. Many believed the message. Until the same Jews from Thessalonica got to hear of it. And they didn't like this. So they came down to Berea and they stirred up more trouble. And again, the brothers had to get Paul out of there quickly. And they took him. And they left him at Athens, where he is now waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. So let's read the text. This is Acts 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Sorry, Adrian, it's not to these slides. You can forget them. We'll just read through the text. 
So then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So, Athens was a city, the city more than any other, a city of philosophers, of thinkers, of ideas. It had been the home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and many more. This was its heritage. And in verse 21 it says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Wow, what a life. Sounds quite like Oxford where I was at university. Lots of history, great heritage, lots of discussing and arguing about ideas. Opinions were the currency. Lots of people willing to mouth off and argue. Sorry, debate, debate you call it. (laughs) Much more respectable. So Paul goes to the synagogue as usual and he reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks there. He reasoned or debated or taught or preached. We're not precisely sure what the word means. But he also did this in the marketplace. This wasn't as usual. This was, if you like, the high street or the town square where in Athens people would gather and they'd sit around and they'd discuss. So in Athens, for Paul, this is a good place to be. Now it says in the text... There was a reason he did this. It was his normal practice to go to the synagogue when he was evangelizing. That was a good place to start. But maybe, you see, he wasn't planning to do that here. He hadn't planned to come to Athens. He was there waiting for Silas and Timothy. He was on his own, which was unusual. So maybe, maybe he was just going to take some time out, you know, a few days off while he waited. But 
It says in verse 16, he was greatly troubled in his spirit to see the city so full of idols. So, therefore, that text says, for that reason he went to the synagogue and the marketplace. He couldn't help himself. He simply had to preach the truth about Christ because he was so upset by what he saw and what he heard all around him. Now, it may be an obvious point, but I think our culture... Society today is startlingly similar to Athens in terms of both idols and new thinking and the latest ideas. Now, the idols Paul would have seen would have been altars and statues and shrines and temples, the Parthenon itself that we so admire. For Paul, that would have been a place of idolatrous worship, the Temple of Athene. Certainly, the Taliban or Islamic State would have been quick to blow it up for exactly that reason. Now, for us... We don't have such physical things as a rule, do we? But if an idol is anything we devote ourselves to instead of to God, if it's anything we honour with our time and our money and our energy and our affections in such a way that it comes before God or instead of God in our lives, if an idol is anything we put our hope in or look to and depend on for security and for meaning and for identity instead of getting it from God, then idols are everywhere. You see, if we humans do not honour God as we're designed and intended to, in the way that's right, in the way that brings us peace and joy, then it is simply in our hearts that we will fix our hope and our passion and our dependency on something else instead. That's just how we are as humans. If we do not satisfy ourselves with God himself, then the need within us to be satisfied will cry out for something else to attach itself to instead in an effort to fill that gap. That's in our nature. We have eternal longings. But if we don't satisfy them with the eternal things of God, then we will seek temporal, earthly things that cannot satisfy in an attempt to fill the void and make ourselves whole. That may be the traditional idols of Western rationalism and materialism. Maybe money and status, our job, our career. I need to be somebody, to have influence, to be successful. Maybe pleasure in the fine things of life, the things we own, our house, our car, the latest technology, the newest and best gadget, as soon as it comes out. Are these the things that drive us in life? Or it could be a family. Or it might be sex, the thrill, the excitement, the chasing after more and better. Or it could be leisure, or sport, or food, or alcohol. Getting drunk is an end in itself, not a byproduct for many people today. Or drugs, even if you're not addicted, you're always chasing after another high to match or to better the last one. Or the excitement of the adrenaline junkie, always pushing the limits, a new thrill. And many of these things are not wrong in themselves, not when they're within their proper boundaries. But if we elevate them beyond their place, if we put them on a pedestal in place of God, they'll never, never satisfy because they're not meant to. Or as in Athens, it might be the latest ideas that are all around us. You see, there are causes, aren't there, in our day? There are causes to champion. There are campaigns to fight. Many of them worthy, some of them not. 
climate change. It might be real and important. But a cause can also become your idol if that's what you live for, if that's where you get identity and belonging. To fight for the cause fills a need in you. Well, you can live your life via social media, can't you? You can be dependent on it for your likes, for your feedback, for your affirmation, for your identity. Or in our day, what about your sexual orientation or transgender identity or gender fluidity? The speed of change in social attitudes is extraordinary. And the range of possibilities are apparently endless. For some people, that's the big issue. Maybe that's the missing piece in my life. If I get that right, perhaps everything else will finally fall into place. If I accept myself and others accept me as I believe I really am. Is that where I put my ultimate trust for peace and fulfillment, wholeness? And there are a vast range in our day of spiritual or near-spiritual beliefs that may have no foundation in truth or reality, but they're not confined just to the fringes of our culture. I've got a friend who is considering a very attractive business proposal, very attractive job offer. He was pushing the other party for a decision. Are we going to go with this or not? But he was told, well, actually a decision won't be imminent because Mercury was in retrograde and that's not a good time to make big decisions. Now this happens, Mercury in retrograde, it happens three or four times a year for about three weeks each time. It's an entirely natural part of the way the planets move. But that's a lot of the year to be unable to make big decisions. And my friend walked away. Nay, we could laugh at that. But such things are now in the mainstream and viewed as respectable. There are all sorts of ideas around. You'll have met them about spiritual energy or Mother Earth or life forces or the afterlife. Many people put their trust in these things. They may have no coherent framework or rationale. There's no evidence they should be true. And they are either simply garbage or else they are spiritual deception. But people put their trust in them and live their lives by them. And that's idolatry. And to be distressed in your spirit, as Paul was in Athens, is an entirely appropriate response. At the dishonouring of the one true God. At the lies that people have believed. At the blindness that keeps them captive. So that they cannot find true wholeness and peace in Christ. It's right to be distressed. But I'm not here today just to denounce such things or to sound off about the evils of modern society. Paul was distressed, therefore he engaged the Athenians to bring them the truth. So that's our response. Okay, so how can we engage with people? What can we say to them? How can we reach out to them, as Paul did, to bring them truth? That's the point this morning. Let's go back to the text. Adrian, you can find this one. I think it's the second word slide. Verse 18, he's debating with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now to the Athenians, the ancient world generally, philosophy wasn't separate from religion. Much philosophy concerned the nature of the gods and how you thought they were determined to a great extent how you thought you should be and how you should live. So Epicureans, they believed that gods existed, but they were completely remote from human life. They required nothing from us and they weren't involved in any way with us, so you just had to live the best you could. 
The Stoics, on the other hand, they believed the gods existed as a divine impulse, a force within both humans and nature that was impersonal, but you just had to try and live in balance with it. I remember when I was at university, I, I chose as an option to do a paper on Greek religious belief because I genuinely wanted to understand did they, did they really believe? Did they think they were real and personal? Zeus and Apollo and Athene and all the rest, often crazy characters of Greek mythology. If you were serious about your worship, could you, could you interact with them? Could you understand them? Or was it just more of a sort of cultural thing? I remember the conclusion that apart from the so-called mystery religions, which were more like demonic cults, it seemed all you could do was pray and sacrifice and hope for the best. You couldn't expect any consistency from these gods or a response or even their attention. Who knows? And so how much you believe the old stories was up to you. So, you see, in Greek tradition, there's very little in religious or philosophical thought to suggest that you could interact in any way with personal gods, much less know them. So when Paul comes along, speaking about Jesus and resurrection, as it says in verse 18... This is very unfamiliar territory for them. And some dismiss him as a babbler, verse 18. That's a deliberately mocking word. It's a contemptuous word. He's advancing foreign gods, they say. Apparently, he talks so much about the resurrection, they think this is a new pair of gods. There's Jesus and there's resurrection. They're a pair of gods. And you see, foreign gods is not a good thing to be bringing them. Socrates himself was famously condemned to death in Athens for exactly that charge, advocating foreign gods. So if you're at the top of the intellectual tree, as the Athenians thought they were, then some outsider, and they look down on foreigners as barbarians, some outsider bringing foreign gods, it's not likely to win their favour. And I've no doubt many of you have had the experience of being mocked and dismissed by intellectual people just for speaking of faith in a God who's out of date or dead or being disproved by science. How can you be so stupid? How can you be so gullible as to believe that old stuff nowadays? You've been there, I expect. So they took him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's a council or a court of the great and the good of Athens. It may have been more like being brought to court. They took him. It may have been more that than a desire to explore what he had to say. The question, may we know this new teaching? Well, that may have been a, an ironic, a hostile question rather than a polite inquiry. We don't know. But either way, Paul now has a platform to speak. He's given the floor to preach to the cream of Athenian society. What an opportunity. Now, there's many things we could look at about how he seeks to communicate truth to them in what we might say were culturally relevant ways. And if you Google church engage contemporary culture, you find several of the top replies refer you directly to this passage in Acts 17. So we could note in verses 22 to 28, we could note that he seeks to build bridges and he's respectful rather than criticizing or alienating them. He starts off by what may be a compliment. I see that you're very religious. And he refers to an altar he's seen in the city. He makes a connection. He quotes twice from Greek poets. He uses their words as a springboard for what he has to say. He acknowledges common ground. He avoids quoting Hebrew scriptures and traditions which they wouldn't understand. He refers to Adam, but he doesn't name him. 
I shared before the time I had some worship music out on my desk at work. And a colleague leaned over my shoulder and just read it. And they said, your blood has covered me. That's the words from the song. But Paul avoids using language that will create distance. Maybe we could learn from him. But having done all that in verses 22 to 28, he doesn't in any way pull his punches with the truth he has to bring in verses 29 to 31. I want to look at three elements in what he says that are crucial for us as we seek to speak to people today of Christ. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the current cultural climate, there are three things here that will always be relevant, which we can always fall back on. Wherever else the argument or the discussion may be, however unfamiliar or even hostile the situation into which we're speaking might be. Firstly, verse 24, 25, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He gives the big truth about God. He's not one God among many. He's not a God. He doesn't live in temples. He's infinitely greater than that. He's the creator of everything, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we don't wait on him and look after his shrine or offer him food. He's not some little deity that needs anything from us. He's already totally complete and full in every way. He doesn't have needs. Rather, he's the one that meets our needs. And he does it completely. He gives all men life and breath and everything else. And when I read it, it was that last phrase that hit me. Life and breath and everything else. See, it's not just a throwaway phrase. Oh, and all the other things. It doesn't mean that. He means it. He means everything else we get from him. Whatever we need, he's the one who gives it. He's the source. Just as he is complete in himself, so he makes us complete, full in every way. One translation says... Human hands cannot serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. As Psalm 145 says, you open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And the word satisfy means you fill me up until I couldn't possibly cope with any more. It's food, yes it is. And it's the necessities of life, yet it is. But it's spiritual food as well. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Till I lack nothing. You see, the limiting factor isn't how much he has to give. It's how much we can cope with receiving. He's too big to ever run out. So if we're engaging with our culture, we're speaking with friends or neighbours or colleagues... Whatever they're seeking, whatever their need is, we need to be absolutely confident to say, Jesus Christ can satisfy you completely and meet your deepest needs more fully than you could ever imagine. Now to some that might just sound like religious speak. Many people have developed a protective layer against that stuff. But to those who know their need for meaning, for identity, for truth, for peace, to those who are empty and hungry and needy inside. 
Jesus Christ is the only and the complete answer. There is no other. Now modern life might seem more complex and more sophisticated and more bewildering and more depressing even than ever before. But however differently they are packaged, the needs of the human heart do not change. And you and I need to be very clear and very sure. We can look people in the eye and say, my God is the one who will give you life and breath and everything else. To all the heartache and hurt and confusion and loneliness and emptiness and longing of those around us. As well as to those who seem content and satisfied. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And we need to be sure enough that that is true, that we can pass the message on. So firstly, we can tell people in our day, my God satisfies every need through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we can tell people, my God can be known through Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 26, God made every nation of men to live on earth and determined their times and their boundaries with one overriding purpose, that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God wants to be found. But the problem is, of course, we can't find him by ourselves. When Paul says, perhaps reach out and find him, The verb for reaching out means grope around, fumble about. It's like a game my kids have, or had, I should say. They used to play, we've got an enclosed trampoline with a net round in the garden. And they had this game, which for some reason I never understood, was called Marco Polo. Where that came from, I don't know. But one of them would have their eyes closed, and they had to find the others by groping around without looking. And the others would run around, avoiding him. And the only clue is they would shout out, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, so you'd hear the voice, and you'd respond. And you're groping around trying trying to find them. And the reality is probably you'd never find them unless they were let themselves get caught. But you see, when you have your eyes closed... The groping around is very hesitant and it's very slow. And as I say, it's ineffective unless you let yourself be caught. And that's the verb here, to grope around in the dark, to fumble about in the hope of finding, although that finding process is useless, even though God is not far from us. You see, we find God not by our own efforts, but because he allows himself to be found. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. God comes to us when we seek him. It's him that makes it effective, not our fumbling in the dark. But he has made us to seek him. And just as the Athenians had an altar to an unknown God, reaching out to the God they could not find until Paul says, I'm going to tell you about him. Just as they had that altar, so in our times, people have their own unknown gods or higher powers or belief systems or spiritual connections or whatever it might be. But it's groping in the dark until we say to them, as Paul did, let me help you find what you're groping for. Let me tell you about Jesus, the God that you can know for yourself. Eight of us went away two weeks ago for the weekend to a place called Fladerbrennen. 
a Christian retreat centre. It's at the far end of Wales, Pembrokeshire. And I believe it was featured on Songs of Praise that same weekend, two weeks ago, I think. That's a coincidence. But it's a lovely and remote place, very peaceful. And they have three very short meetings a day there that they call the Rhythm of Prayer. And they follow a set liturgy. And this liturgy is read through very slowly. Now, I can't honestly say those meetings by themselves did much for me directly. Except that being away in that place with time and with no agenda, just the words, well, it stirred me to pray myself after the meetings had finished. It stirred me to seek God, just to spend time with God. And after the early evening meeting on the Saturday, I was walking up and down the long drive on my own that leads up to this place, and I was praying, and I was being with God, and I just experienced such a closeness with him, such a sense of his presence, his love, his peace, and I just sang, and I just worshipped, and I told him I loved him, and I was just utterly satisfied with my God. It was wonderful. And I thought, gosh, it's been a long time since it's been like this. But he stirred me to seek him, and I did, and I most certainly found him because he came close to me. And I came away thinking, Lord, knowing you really is the greatest thing in my life. And I'm such a fool if I don't make time to seek you more, because when I seek you, you let yourself be found by me. Now, it's not all about experiences. And we're all made differently. And God will be found by each one of us in different ways. But if we seek him, we will find him. That's a promise of scripture, a promise of Jesus. And when we do find him, we'll want to seek him more. So I say to myself, I say to all of you, whatever your Christian walk is like right now, let's seek him a little bit more. And let's ask him that when we do, that we'll find him. Let's do it not because we have to or because we ought to, but because it's our birthright as his children to know him. And it's wonderful. This is the eternal life that we were born to when we came to Christ and God made us alive in him and poured into us his Holy Spirit. This is eternal life, Jesus says, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's the essence, that's the substance of this eternal life that we've already begun and that will go on forever and ever and ever. It's simply this, knowing God and knowing Christ. I want to know Christ, says Paul in Philippians. Me too, you too, I hope. And you see, that's what we can say to those who are groping around for an unknown God, trusting in idols, looking for meaning in the latest ideas. Or to those who like the Athenians with their ideas of remote and impersonal gods. To those who've got no worldview that contains a God that you can know intimately, firsthand, for real. We can say you can know God for yourself through Jesus Christ. And because we know him, we also have a testimony. We are witnesses to the truth. You can know Christ and he will satisfy you completely. We may not be good at arguing or debating, but we can share our testimony about the God that we know personally. We simply tell the truth about the truth. And that will always be a good way to engage any culture we find ourselves in the middle of.
So firstly, we can tell people, through Jesus Christ, my God satisfies the deepest need of the human heart. We can tell them, secondly, through Jesus Christ, my God can be known personally, and we can give personal testimony to that truth. And thirdly, we can point people to the resurrection. Verse 30, Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now it's interesting, in the whole speech as recorded by Luke, Paul doesn't mention Jesus by name at all. He doesn't mention his death on the cross at all or forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, what we have in this chapter, it's a summary. It's not the entire speech. And he does talk about Jesus elsewhere in the chapter, including verse 18, where he's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And of course, you can't easily talk about a resurrection without first talking about a death. So I would guess that Jesus' death on the cross and forgiveness of sins, I would guess that certainly was part of Paul's message. But it's the resurrection that he seems repeatedly to put center stage. And here is the resurrection. Why is that? Because the resurrection is the one tangible, physical, factual event that God has deliberately given us as proof to all men of who Christ was. That's Paul's phrase, verse 31, proof to all men. Now, God doesn't normally go in for proofs. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to prove anything to us. We just have to obey him and trust him. But Jesus' miracles, for instance, are described by John as signs, as pointers, evidence of who Jesus was. They were tangible. Jesus even told people twice, if they wouldn't believe him, at least believe the evidence of the miracles. Jesus implied himself in John 2 that the resurrection itself was a sign. But here, Paul goes further. It's not just a sign. It's not just evidence. The resurrection, he says, is God's proof. It's proof that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he is Lord of all. What does proof mean? It means case closed. That's it. It's settled. Nothing more to say. No room for any argument. Nothing else is needed. And proof is both his kindness to us who believe and it's his condemnation to those who do not. But you can look at the evidence, as many have done. You can find it online or there's many books. Evidence for the resurrection. Go and look for it. It's worth reading. It'll do you good. It will strengthen you to speak to others with confidence and conviction. Because you see, it stands up to scrutiny. There is no other explanation that fits the facts. The tomb was empty with the grave clothes left behind. The heavy stone was rolled away. The Roman guard had vanished. There was no body for his enemies to produce to squash this talk of resurrection. He appeared alive to many people, not just the disciples, on several occasions. His fearful disciples were changed men beyond recognition. They were willing to die for what they knew to be true because it wasn't just a fairy story. None of us, none of this makes sense if it didn't really happen. And Paul, who himself met the risen Christ so dramatically on the Damascus road, he declares in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. 
You're still in your sins. We deserve to be pitied for backing such a loser. My words, not his. But, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. God has given proof to all men that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that proof will never fade away. It will never become invalid. It will never become outdated. So we can and we should use it when speaking to others. They might close their ears. They might ignore it. But there is no sensible argument against it. We were talking with my dad this summer when we were away. He said, it's just not logical that a man died and came back to life. I begged him. I said, Dad, if it's logic you want to use, then tell me what did happen. What else makes sense? Dad, at least be open to consider the facts of the resurrection. The testimonies of those sitting here around you have radically changed lives. Doesn't it demand at least looking into? Because if it is true, nothing else matters by comparison. I pleaded with him, Dad, I said, if you're talking about logic, follow it through to the conclusions. I pray for him every day. He's not got long left to change his mind, to repent, in fact, as it says, to think again. It's what the word means. But there are these three things we can say, these timeless truths that will never have a use by date. My God is the only one who will ever satisfy you. My God can be known personally through Jesus Christ. And I can give you my testimony to that myself. And my God has given you the proof of the resurrection. Now that's not the whole gospel, I know. There's more to it than that. But you can't put the whole gospel in every song or every conversation or every sermon, can you? But those are three things you can grab hold of and use. And when we do bring truth to people. When we do speak, when we have a chance to share, then like Paul in verses 32 to 34, we'll get three different responses. There are always three different responses when we preach the gospel, and we should expect all three. Some will sneer and reject what we say. Some will say, yes, very interesting, we'll talk again but they'll go no further. And some will believe. It says, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, some commentators think that Paul's time in Athens was a failure because only a few believed and that Paul learned from it later on. Well, it's true we hear no more in Scripture again about Dionysius or Damaris or a church in Athens. But the historical evidence tells us that a church was indeed established and Dionysius became the first bishop of Athens. You see, a few can be a very great success. Now, I know it can be hard. It can be very hard to speak when others sneer and reject and mock. And we feel pretty small and pretty weak and ineffective. It can be very hard when we're so disappointed by those who seem genuinely interested and want to know more. But then the moment passes with no actual response. The window of softness to the gospel can be very short before Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower. But we have to persevere. Because if we do, there will always be a few. Remember Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father draws him we don't know who he's drawing 
We don't know the ones he's calling, whose heart the Spirit is preparing and softening. We don't know what stage they are on the journey. Maybe our few feeble words of testimony will be just one essential link on the chain that leads later on in their lives to salvation. And we'll never know the part we played, the crucial part, until we get to glory. There may be a few well-dones that we weren't expecting. But if we know that there will always be those who reject the message and sneer, then that doesn't mean we failed when that happens. It just means we have to move on. Okay, Lord, seems like you weren't drawing those ones to yourself. At least not yet. On to the next. Maybe they will be. But we won't find out unless we speak to them and love them and pray for them. You see, we have to proclaim the truth to all if we are to reach the few. And we have to take a few knocks, yeah. Take a few things on the chin and persevere. But I want you to be confident of this. You, ordinary you, you have in your hands and in your mouth the words of life that are the power of God for salvation. And we are sent. We're sent in the ordinariness of our daily lives. We're sent with those words of life to our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues and to strangers. Because the power of the gospel saved you, didn't it? And it saved me. It works. We are proof. It works. God breaks in amazingly and unexpectedly and he transforms lives. Yes, in Amersham. Yes, in 2019. And all it needs are normal, weak, timid people like you and me to decide we're not going to be silent. We'll risk the embarrassment. We will speak when we get the chance. And we're not going to be downcast if we don't see great and immediate success. No, we're going to persevere. As the Lord said to Paul in the next chapter of Acts when he was in Corinth, he said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. God has many people in this town, in this area, where he has placed us and to whom he is sending us. And my prayer is, Lord, help us to speak, help us to find them, everyone, help us to bring them home. Amen. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.